chairs. And we're going to continue our study uh, through this book, where, which again, remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this book for one of his disciples, a young man he, man he had been training and bringing along with him, a fellow that he was now going to entrust to serve as a pastor of a congregation. Paul would do it if he could, but Paul had to be other places, and so he sends this man, Timothy. I want you to go to Ephesus there. And again, he had that very clear purpose. I want you to, I need you to go there to attain order and then stick around and maintain that order there in the city. And as we came to chapter 3, we, we took notice of the fact that Paul transitioned to those that would be the leaders of the congregation. Timothy, you're, you're going to be one man, not enough, obviously, and you're not going to be there forever necessarily, so we need some leaders there. And so, Timothy, I want you to search out some individuals to serve as leaders there. Now, two weeks ago, because last week Jeff Simpson shared uh, in regards to Kenya and Hebrews chapter 11, but two weeks ago when we were in our, this book of 1 Timothy, we were digging into the first group of those leaders. And again, the, that group, they are the overseers. Used, a whole bunch of different terms are used for them, terms like the elders, the bishops, the presbyters, the pastors, all different words are used throughout the New Testament, but these are the men that would serve as the spiritual overseers of the congregation. And if you recall, you can look at it again in verses 1 through 7, Paul said that those individuals should be above reproach, a one-woman man, you remember that term, we talked about that, sober-minded and self-controlled, four qualifications there in verse 2. Also in verse 2, he says those men needed to be respectable, honorable, and able to teach. In verse 3, he said they should not be a drunkard, violent, quarrelsome, or a lover of money. And then finally in verses 4, 5, and 6, he said that they should be men that can manage their, their own household well, not be a recent convert, and that the reason they should not be a recent convert is the position might cause them to be puffed up with pride. And so those are the qualifications that Paul gave for the spiritual leaders of a local congregation. Those were the people Timothy should be looking for. Notice again, those are all qualifications of character. Paul doesn't say anything about their education. And that, that may be like, okay, for, for the role of like elder. But if you think of it, this is the same role as a pastor. And so Paul's not saying, I need you to find people with the greatest education. I need you to find people with the greatest accomplishments. I need you to find people that have these positions in society so that those outside of the church will say, wow, those people, look at that, and be drawn to it. Paul doesn't mention any of those things. He mentions character. Paul says, you need men of character to be serving in those positions. Men that listen to the leading of God and then submit themselves obediently to that leading. That's the people that you need to be in charge of your congregation. Here now, Paul is going to transition to a second office in the church, and what you'll see is it's almost exactly the same qualifications. Again, it must be men of character or people of character. Now, is there a place for worldly accomplishments, yeah? Is there a place for education? Uh-huh. Will they be uh, helpful 
as a person seeks to administer their duties, they almost certainly will. But the primary indicator is not to be those things, it's to be the person's character. And so as we come now to verse uh, 8, Paul is going to transition to a second office in the church, a second position of leadership in the church, and this is the position of the deacons, or the deacon, if we're just talking about it in the singular. It's a word which comes from an English pronunciation of the Greek word. So the Greek word is diakonos, or deacon, is where we get that. And so whether we're talking about it singular or plural, it comes from that same place, diakonos. And it means, that word literally means servant. It appears about 100 times in our New Testament, which was written in Greek, Old Testament primarily in, in Hebrew. And it appears about 100 times there. The vast majority of them, something like 93 of them, uh, it is just translated as servant. So when the word is used, it's talking about someone serving, a servant, or whatever it might be. The only time that it's translated as deacon is when it's referring to a specific position and a responsibility that a person has. But the takeaway from that is we see, just from the meaning of the word, what the position is primarily about. It's about serving. Now that's not to imply that the elder doesn't serve. And the deacon does. That's not to imply that. The idea is here with this idea of the deacon or the diakonos is that it is primarily a material serving position, a physical serving position. And so the elder is going to serve and offer spiritual insight. The deacon is going to be more physically involved in a serving position of sorts. That's the first thing that we want to take away from it. Very important that we remember, though, that the elder is not like sitting back and do this and do that and do this and I'll read my books or something like that. Because remember, even Jesus himself, he said, even the Son of Man, that's him, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In another place, Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, I am among you as one who diakonoses. I don't think that's pronounced right. But I am among you as one who serves. And so we certainly don't want to walk away from this with this point being the elders, the pastors, they sit back and then the peon deacons, they do all the work. That's not the point at all that is being made here. The point is simply that the role of a deacon is a more physically serving role than that of the elder. A deacon will be those whose primary responsibilities in the church will be to meet the physical needs of the congregation. And so we know that the elder, his primary role is to teach the church, and it's to provide spiritual oversight for the church. The deacon's primary role is focused on ministering to and caring for the practical needs of a particular body of believers. You see the distinction? Which of those is more spiritual? Neither. They're both spiritual positions. They're just different responsibilities. Nowhere in the New Testament are we provided a statement of the duties of a deacon. And I think that's a really wise decision on God's part, that he never gave us a specific responsibilities of the duties of a deacon, because as you might imagine, those duties are going to change 
depending on the, the place you're at, the culture you're in, the time that you are in. And so we don't list a bunch of things, they gotta do these things here. We give general concepts, general ideas. Now we are provided with an example, however, and it's found in the book of Acts. We studied that not too long ago, many of you may recall. I hope many of you might recall that we studied the book of Acts not too long ago. And in there we have an example of how it is that deacons minister to a congregation and how when they do, they are effectively able to support the elders so that they can do what it is that they are called for that congregation. The example's in Acts chapter six. Now Acts chapter six, you might recall, is the period of time in the local church in which the overwhelming majority of believers still were living in or residing in the city of Jerusalem. Now there were those that that was their home, but the vast majority of Christians at that time period is very early in the church, maybe less than a year, the vast majority of the Christians that were in Jerusalem were there because they had come as Jews for the Passover and they had never left. Because at the Passover they began to discover about Jesus and, then on, and they became believers and then on Pentecost they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so they just remained there in Jerusalem. I'm not going to go home. I'm going to miss all this wonderful experience that we're having. So they stayed there in Jerusalem. And they were taught by the apostles. Those men that had been with Jesus, had walked with Jesus for three years, had learned all that Jesus wanted them to learn so he could present, they could present to those that would come after him. They were sitting there doing that, loving it, having the time of their lives. But, as you can imagine, when they got all these people on vacation, they ran out of money, they you know, ran out of places to stay. People were like, when are you leaving, man? You know, kind of thing. Hotels were filled or whatever. There, was, there were problems. There were practical needs that began to develop. And before long, there was this group of widows that began to complain against that group of widows, and they were getting more than we were getting, and they get served first, and we get served last. And they, they were bringing it to Peter, bringing it to John, bringing it, you know, and Peter's like, I gotta teach in a few minutes. You want me to cook food for you? Like, I can't help you right now. And so, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling here a little bit, but here is what happened. Here's these ladies, these people, legitimate physical needs that needed to be met, which was increasing the pressure on the apostles to meet those needs. This is what Acts 6 says. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek Jews, arose against the Hebrews, that's the Jewish Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they come to the apostles, hey, we have a problem. Legitimate need, we gotta eat. Legitimate need. Now the apostles could have dropped everything, everything that they were doing, everything that they were called to be doing, they could have dropped that to meet the needs of these widows, but in wisdom they realized to do so would mean that they would be neglecting what it is that God called them to do. And so, instead of the apostles canceling their Bible studies, canceling their private counseling, personal counseling appointments, helping people in the faith, canceling those teaching type of responsibilities. Instead of doing that, or I think even worse, just sort of mailing in their teaching, like meeting all these physical needs, now it's time to teach, oh, let's see, uh, today, uh, oh, let's do Psalm 23, you know, or something like some familiar thing and just mailing it in. Instead of doing that, they wisely... Look at verse 2. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. And they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who, will appoint, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If you go back and look at verse 2 there, they said we, we shouldn't give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's the word diakonos. We shouldn't give it up to diakonos. It's not right, they said, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, please don't misread that. That's not to imply that, serve, that they felt serving tables was beneath them. It's not at all. It's not something like, well, we are the apostles. You know, we don't serve tables or, or something. That's supposed to be my English accent uh, as best as I can, like Jeeves or whatever. Um, rather, what they're saying is this. Look, we have a role to fill. We have a responsibility that we have been given. And so we can't fill some different role at the neglect of the role that God has given us to do. God has given us to teach this congregation, this new group of believers. That's what we must first fill. And when we're ready to do that and prepared to do that and adequately doing that, then we'll empty garbage cans and take tables and stuff, but we cannot neglect what it is that God has called us to do. What incredible wisdom that God gave these people in this instance here. And so again, we're never given a, le- a list of the tasks of a deacon or, or what a group of deacons are called to. And so if you look in the case of Acts chapter 6, it was for them to distribute food to these widows. It was a little more than that. It was to purchase the food, find out how much they need, make sure that it's cooked, make sure it gets to. There was a lot involved with it. It wasn't they were just handing out bowls of soup or something. In our context, the work of a deacon might look a little different. It might include those kinds of things, but it might include the administration of a church's funds, like our financial advisory board here at Calvary. I see those men as serving in a role of deacons to me. It might be the upkeep of the facilities and making sure that the place is presentable and things like that. It could be the physical care of some of the members in the church. Time to time, people need their lawns cut. I could get out there and do it. I like cutting lawns, actually. It could be uh, those kinds of practical things. People had floods in their home last night and getting over there and serving in that particular way. Well, I'll tell you, if there was a flood in someone's home this morning, I can't be over there helping. The elders, many of them teaching around the building right now, can't be over there helping. That's the position somebody else needs to step into and serve in that role. And as I watch the congregation, as I see the congregation and the way that this body serves, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, a Wednesday evening, it's during the week, it's just out and about as people are involved in people's lives, I see people fulfilling the role of a deacon in other people's lives here at Calvary. Greeters and ushers and people that are cutting the lawn and people that are shoveling snow and all these kinds of things. They're physical tasks, and there's a myriad of others that I haven't named, and when they are done well, it allows those men that are called to be the elders of the congregation to focus their time and attention on the spiritual needs of the congregation, 
praying for the congregation, praying with others in the congregation, studying the scripture, reach out, doing outreach, teaching the Bible, counseling with folks, all of those spiritual needs. Now, I know many, all the men of our, I know all the elders um, we've met. They're good people. Uh, I know them all. Some are a little bit older in age and maybe some of the physical things they can't do. But I know every one of those men would do the work, physical work, if they could physically. But that's not the best use of where God has for them. God calls those men to a particular role and deacons help them fill that role. All right, and so then who should be a deacon? Well, it sounds like it should be a person that is kind of handy. They can fix things. Hey, you know, that door is sticking. Could you help me out with that? Call the deacons. It sounds like it should be a person that's younger, physically fit, able to do some hard work without keeling over or something like that. It sounds like it should be a person that's knowledgeable in the ways of the world, maybe finances, investing, spending, all those kinds of things. All of those things, I think, would be helpful for the many roles that need to be filled here in the church by a deacon. But let's notice what Paul focuses on. Again, he focuses on character. Beginning in verse 8, he said this, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Dramatic pause. Just kidding. If you remember that Acts passage where we need some people to serve the widows, their you know, bowls of soup and so on, you remember there the criteria that the apostles gave was men of good repute, reputation, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. Full of the spirit, full of, the wis of wisdom, and a track record that establishes that they have a good reputation for themselves. To wait on tables? Full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and a, and a good reputation, a track record to wait on tables? Really? Yeah. That's exactly what the apostle said that was required of those individuals that would fill that role. When God raises up people to serve his church, his primary interest is to find those whose hearts are right with him. That's his primary interest. But this guy can do anything. He's so handy. He's amazing. My primary interest is that they are a person of, of character and that their hearts are right with me. His primary concern is not about talents. It's not about abilities, but rather it's about spiritual virtue. And you will notice from how I began today, what we studied two weeks ago, verses 8 through 13 are almost identical to verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 are the qualifications of an elder. Verses 8 through 13 are the qualifications of a deacon. And they are almost identical to one another. The difference is that the elders need to be able to teach. That's not mentioned here of the deacons. And that's it. 
And so although the duties of a deacon are more material in nature, the qualifications of a deacon are just as spiritual as the ones outlined for the elders. Now I'll say something similar to what it is I said when we began our look at the elders. And that is, even if you never serve in the role of an officially appointed deacon, I think these words are as much for us or you as they are for those who officially will serve in that role of a deacon. And the reason I say that because in the general sense of the term, diakonos, servant, all of us as Christians are called to serve in some way, the body of Christ and his church. And so every Christian is to be involved in some form of spiritual service. And so that being the case, let's look at the qualifications of character necessary to do that well. Paul begins, he says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. Here we have this new category, deacons. First thing he says is they must be dignified. That's a term which means they must be worthy of respect. Simply, you could translate it as, or more simply, translate it as a person whose life is worth imitating. That people can look at that person's life and say, you know what, that's a good guy. That's a good gal that is there. And so this person may not be the person that stands up in the pulpit and delivers a message to a congregation. They may not be leading a Bible study or a home group or something like that. But nevertheless, they will serve as a representative of the congregation. And as a representative, not only of the congregation, but of Christ, and the congregation, as a representative of those two entities, that person's life must be one that is worthy of respect. Alternatively, we might say they do not cause disrespect to either the Lord or to his church. Secondly, Paul says that they must not be double-tongued. Now, you'll notice in verse 8, it, it says deacons likewise must be that phrase must be applies to everything that follows. And so they must be dignified. They must not be double-tongued. They must not be addicted to wine and so on. And so they, they must not be double-tongued. In our vernacular, we might say something like they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They say one thing to this group over here. They say another thing to that group over there. They represent themselves differently or the truth, if you will, differently when they talk to these people as opposed to when they talk to those people. He says that person must not, the deacon must not do that sort of thing. And what that means is that the deacon, just like the elder, must be a person that has learned to control their tongue. They don't lie. They don't, they don't double talk or all these kinds of things. They've learned to control their tongue, and that's going to keep them then from saying things that will distract others from following Jesus. Well, the deacon said this. No, he said this. Well, isn't he a leader in the church? It's going to distract people. They can't be that sort of person. They are a representative of the church and Christ. In many people's eyes, if the representative of Christ's church does it, then it's Christ that has done it. That's not right, but in many people's eyes, that's how they perceive things to be. And so that deacon that can't be trusted with their words has just caused others to stumble. Paul says they must not be 
double-tongued. He doesn't say they should not be. It'd be a good idea if they weren't. He says they must not be double-tongued. They can't give conflicting reports to different people at different times. They must be consistent in their speech. They must be a person that others can trust. They must be perceived as being credible, and the reason why is because they are people that are truthful. They must be a person that can be depended upon. They must be a person that if they say they're going to do it, they're going to do it. They must not be double-tongued. He says they must not be, or must be not, addicted to much wine. More literally, that's translated as to turn one's mind to. The deacon here is not a person that's preoccupied with alcohol. And so then, this is not merely the one that we might say, oh, he's got a problem, or she's got a problem with alcohol. That's not where Paul is going. This is a person that is just simply preoccupied with it. They unduly allow it to influence their lives. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I got to go home and get a glass of wine. That's a problem, I think. You're unduly influenced by that thing. If the solution to your problem is a nice glass of wine, that's a problem. The solution to your problem is Christ. This deacon understands that. Ephesians chapter 5 says that believers are not to be drunk with wine. And as we looked at that, we saw that's really any form of alcohol. Wine was the form of alcohol in that day. Here, Paul's instructions go beyond that. Of course you shouldn't be drunk with wine. No believer should be drunk with wine. But he goes beyond that and says that the deacon should not be swayed by that alcohol or that wine either. And so while it might be permissible for a deacon to consume a moderate amount of alcohol, wisdom would dictate that they move very, very carefully, for all of us, that we move very carefully with substance, lest it impact us in a way that we were not expecting. Because again, they are the representative of Christ and his church. And whether it's proper or not, people will see them and formulate their opinions about Christ based on their actions. Paul says they must not be addicted to too much wine. He goes on, Paul says, the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Now, I like the King James here. I don't know what it means, but I like it. The King James says they must not be uh, greedy for filthy lucre. Lucre's not a word I use very much, but it's certainly something I don't want to be, and it's not what we should want our deacons to be. Now, I looked it up. The idea of filthy lucre is greedy for dishonest gain. A deacon cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. A deacon must not be a man, or a woman, we'll see in a moment, who is seeking to personally enrich themselves from the ministry. They must not use their office as a means for making money. Some versions translate it as a person that is eager for base gain, like the lowest level, whatever it takes to get it, gain. The person that's turning the opportunities of the office into a means for personal profit. I don't know if it still happens this way, but there was a time here in the United States where if you could get that role of a deacon, you became a key person in the community. And people will automatically respect you. And so a lot of business people would like to get named to the local church as a deacon because that would increase the, the foot traffic into their realtor or their bank or whatever it might be. If that was the person's motivation for taking on that responsibility, and I'll go to a few meetings, 
That's greedy for dishonest gain. That's trying to profit from the ministry. You're there for the wrong reasons. Paul says they must not be. There was a movie in the 90s, I don't remember it exactly, the, the title of it, and it wasn't worth looking it up because it's just the name of a movie. But in, in there, the, the lead actor, he said something about greed is good or something. Well, not according to the scripture. And certainly not for the person that would serve in the role of representing the body of Christ as a servant of God or as a deacon. I like the way one commentator, he said it this way, God does not want greedy deacons any more than he wants drunk deacons. And so we might look at, of course, not drunkenness, but kind of back away a little bit from the greedy, but the Lord doesn't. Deacons often will handle offerings. They'll distribute money. They may be those that sign the checks for the congregation. They may oversee the finances of a church. And if those individuals are greedy for dishonest gain, they very well may be overcome with temptation. And Paul said, look, I'd rather have nobody than have a guy that I hurt by putting into that position. Don't put them into that position if they're not prepared for it. They don't have the character for it. Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, Paul uses this word mystery about six different times in the New Testament. He's really the only one in the New Testament that does. And he's not talking about like Agatha Christie, you know, who done it, that kind of thing. He's talking about something that was previously unknown or ununderstood that has now been revealed in the New Testament. A mystery in that sense, something that was hidden but now has been revealed to those with spiritual discernment. And so the mystery of the faith that Paul is speaking of here is really that New Testament revelation. And there's a variety of mysteries of the faith in the New Testament, the church, for instance, and the church age, those kinds of things. But here, what I think Paul really has in mind is the idea of the mystery of how a holy God can forgive sins. Can the blood of bulls and animals do that? No, of course not. But God instituted that. It provided a covering for a period of time. But how can a holy God once and for all remove sins? And the New Testament answers that question. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of the faith, that Jesus' death makes forgiveness possible. And so then, in a word, what Paul is saying here is that a deacon must understand the mystery of the cross. That means a deacon has to be a believer. They're very good at mopping, very good at vacuuming. They can do all sorts of things, but they don't yet know Jesus. Well, they're not to be a deacon. They must understand the mystery of the faith, both for themselves and to be able to explain it to other people because their position is going to give them opportunities. They're going to be at the church one day when the elders and pastors aren't there. They're going to be sweeping. Someone's going to come to the door and be broken down in tears because something serious has happened in their lives, and that deacon has to be able to minister to them too and has to understand the faith and to begin to point them in the direction that they need to go. They must be able to understand it. They have to understand it for themselves. They must be able to explain it to other people as well. And not only that, notice what he says here. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What that means is they must live, also live out the faith. They don't just have all the answers. They can pass the test. Good, you qualify. They must live it out themselves. A commentator I read said this. 
They must be sound in doctrine, but also sound in life. They must not only know the truth, they must live the truth. They know the mystery of the faith. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul says in verse 10, Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let them also be tested. Notice that word, also. That tells us that not only is the deacon to be tested first, but so too is the other one he spoke about, in our case two weeks ago, so is the elder. Both the elder and the deacon also are to be proved first, tested first, and then they are able to serve as deacons if they have proved themselves to be blameless. Now, in using the word tested, Paul's not referring to a pen and paper official deacon test. Can you answer all the questions? What's the proper mix of a mop bucket? You know, these kind of, he's not asking them questions in that regard. It's not that there is an elder test. How many books in the Bible? You know, what are the order of them or whatever? That's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to is they are to be given time and their life is to be observed. We might say it another way, they are to be proved before they are promoted. Or the expression we often use here at Calvary is a pastor is a pastor long before being named a pastor. An elder is an elder long before we officially name that person an elder. A deacon is to be a deacon long before they are officially named a deacon. They're proved first. People observe their lives. This isn't a place for a person to try it out, see how they do. Let's put them in that particular role. Paul's directive that the deacon must, it carries over to this latest qualification. The deacon must be proved first, and then they can be named as such. They should be. They have to be observed for a period of time and prove themselves to be trustworthy prove themselves to be faith, uh, faithful, prove themselves to be the person of character that we thought we were beginning, we think we are beginning to observe. observe. Then they can advance to greater responsibilities. And I think part of the reason, and I failed in this area as I was filling in that role of serving, pressures will inevitably come as deacons exercise their ministries. Hey, can you give me this? Can you give me that? Can you give it? Stop it! Everybody stop calling. I'm changing my name or whatever. You know, it's not hey and so on. Pressures will come. And when pressures come, the inner life is going to be made evident. I like the way someone said it. They said, we are like saturated sponges. And you only know what's inside a saturated sponge when you squeeze it. And it comes out dirty water or Coke that you spilled there on the, uh, the countertop or iced tea or whatever it might be but you only know what that sponge is holding when it's squeezed. And the pressures are gonna come upon that deacon in that role. They're gonna be squeezed. So they must be tempt, uh, tested first and then promoted to that position. Verse 11, he says, their wives likewise. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. This is what I was alluding to a little bit earlier. There's some uncertainty about this verse. And if you're reading different versions, it's going to say things a little bit differently. 
And the reason is, people wonder, is Paul speaking about the wives of the deacons and that they have to fulfill these particular qualifications? Or is Paul speaking about a separate office altogether, female deaconesses? And the difficulty comes because the word in our version, the one I'm using, the ESV, it's translated wives here. The difficulty is that same word can alternatively be translated as woman or women. And so is Paul speaking about the wives of the deacons that are in a role? Or is Paul speaking about a new position altogether involving women that will be in that role, a separate ministry office? I'll say this to begin with, either way, the person's qualifications are that they must be dignified, not a slanderer, sober-minded, and faithful in all things. And so if we're talking about the wife of a deacon, that, that deacon must have a wife who has a respectability that matches his own. Because the deacon's wife becomes a part of his ministry even as the elder's wife and the pastor's wife becomes a part of his ministry because godliness must begin in the home. And so if this is who Paul has in mind here, then these are what Paul is saying, that the deacon's wife must be a believer. She must be serious about the ministry. She must not be given a slanderous talk, and she must be faithful in all that she does. Well, that's if Paul is talking about the wife of a deacon. I'm of the opinion here that Paul is introducing a third office of ministry. So we have the elder role, which Paul made very clear by the use of the words that he did, that that is reserved for the, for the men. Then we have this deacon role he's been talking of, which initially was, he was talking about men. And now I'm of the opinion that Paul is introducing a third ministry position, and that of the deaconess. Now some objections to that thinking that some have raised is, well, if that is the case, why didn't Paul use the word? Why didn't Paul, instead of saying women, why didn't you say, and now for the deaconesses, this is what I say. Well, first off, the word wasn't even invented when Paul lived. Now, he could have made up a word, I guess. But the, the word wasn't even invented for him to use. And so rather than differentiating between deacon and deaconess by using the word deaconess, which wasn't even invented at this time, he differentiates by using the word for woman. Here And the women or the female deacons, that's one argument uh, for that uh, interpretation. I think there's some other reasons here. One, notice Paul's use of the word likewise. When Paul transitioned in verse 11 from elder to deacon, he used the word likewise. When he transitions, in my opinion, here in verse, uh, whatever verse we're in now, he uses the word likewise again. I, th I wonder, I think, I suspect that he does so because he's transitioning to a new office. Also, we know that there is evidence that the order of deaconess was present in the early church outside of this verse. And so if we're looking at this and forming our entire argument on this, that's a little hairy. However, in other New Testament passages, there is evidence of females being referred to as deacons or deaconesses one of those examples in is found in the book of Romans, chapter 16, where Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sennacherib. That word servant there is the word some versions even translate it, a deacon of the church in Sennacherib. And so it seems that there were some present in the first century and we know beyond. 
There's a third argument, I think, for why Paul here is not giving qualifications of deacons' wives, but rather of this particular position, and that is this, is why would Paul give qualifications for deacons' wives and not give qualifications for elders' wives, unless there was a separate position? So I'm not willing to go fight on this issue. I'll fight you. That sounds fun. Let's wrestle. But I'm not willing to fight about this issue. Like, search out the scripture for yourself and see what conclusion that you come to. Either way, whatever we're talking about, if it's a wife of the man that's serving in that role or it's a separate role that a lady is serving in, we see that she must meet these qualifications. Let's hone in on those for a moment here. Number one, she must be dignified. That means worthy of being imitated. I already said it when we we looked at verse 8. That means she's a woman that is worthy of respect. She's a woman that is an example to other people. That's certainly a qualification every one of us should strive for. Next, not be a slanderer. Literally, that's translated, she must not be a devil. Seems like a low bar, um, nonetheless here. Uh, But the idea of the word devil The the word devil really means accuser. She must not be an accuser. She must not be a slanderer. She must not be a person that throws accusations at others and divides with the tongue. Like elders and deacons, she must be a person that has learned to control the tongue. As he did with the elders, and in so many words with the deacons, he said, she must be, or the de- yeah, she must be sober-minded. Remember when we were looking at the elders, we looked at that word. It means temperate. It means vigilant. It means a person that not just is free from alcohol, like sober, we think of that, but it's a person that is on their guard. They're spiritually discerning. They avoid extremes in spiritual matter- matters. I, a commentator I read said, it's a person that keeps his or in this case, her head in all situations. They're the type of person others or a congregation can settle under their care. They can entrust themselves to that person. And then lastly, in verse 11, Paul says that they must be, she must be faithful in all things. Now, doesn't that seem to be a bit overkill for a person who may end up, you know, vacuuming and Mopping and cleaning bathrooms. Like, she's got to be faithful in all things. She's only mopping. That's what Paul says. Faithful in all things. Because once more, even in this role, the person is serving as a representative of Christ and of his church. And people are going to look at that person. They're going to observe them. They're going to formulate even patterns of their own behavior because of the example that that person sets. And Paul says they must be faithful in all things. We have a few more verses. Verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own house as well. He transitions back here, I think, to the men. He says they should be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. Same instructions that he gave the elders. Now that's not to say that the elder and deacon can only have one wife and the deaconess can have as many husbands as she wants. It's not to say that. I think it's more an indicator of the time which Paul wrote. And many of the, the women wouldn't have had more than one husband. Uh, anyway, remember the phrase there, it means a one-woman man. And so here, just like we did with the elder, we're talking about with the, with the deacon, 
They're not running around playing with all kinds of ladies. They're not flirting and, you know, being drawn toward others or drawing them to themselves. Even if they never go, we never cross the line, they're not even in the ballpark of the line. They're a one-woman man. They are a person that is above reproach in their married life. He says they manage their own household well. All of those, they're indicators of a person that will serve the congregation well. Paul says then in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As I think is an interesting word picture here. The word there, good standing, standing, the word, that word is really just a step. They gain a step for themselves. Now some look at that and say like, oh, if they do a good job as deacon, then we'll let them be an elder. So they gain a step. They can step up to that better position. Remember, Paul didn't see it as up and down. Paul saw it as just different responsibilities and different roles. Paul's not talking about here a step in the sense of to another level. He's referring to a step in the sense of a platform, a platform from which a person can speak. Again, Paul didn't see the deacon as lesser than the elder, and nor did he see it as an opportunity for them to advance to a higher position. He just saw them as different positions. So his point here then is that the person who serves well in that role will have a platform from which to speak into the lives of other people. A faithful deacon, because of that faithfulness, will become a person that's respected. They'll become a person that is honored. They'll be, they may even become an, uh, an honored individual in the community as a whole, and certainly in the congregation in which they're serving. And because then they have gained or earned that good standing before God and man, they now have a platform from which they can point other people to Jesus. They've earned that right to speak into people's lives. People will listen to them because they respect them. And those who serve God well, those that see the power and grace of God kind of operative in their lives, they're here, they're mopping, somebody comes in, they're broken up, they're crying, and they sit with them, they, they put their hand on their shoulder, can I get you a cup of water? And they kind of just gently minister to that person's needs and that person breaks down and they've had the opportunity now to tell them all about Christ and the work that he has done in their own life and he can do in this person's life and that person is in the process of healing because of the words that this deacon is sharing with them when he just came she just came to mop what a privilege what a platform that they have earned for themselves that they can be emboldened Look, I can tell people about Jesus just like the pastor up front can tell people about Jesus. I've experienced him. I'm walking with him. I know him, the deacon might say. And they are emboldened to go even further and do more things for Jesus. We'll call that a fringe benefit of serving as a deacon. The Lord blesses them with that. And so as we come now to the close of Paul's instructions for elders and deacons, we remind ourselves, not necessarily the most educated, trained, skilled, or earthly qualified individuals, but rather the most godly of individuals. It's been said, what the leadership is in microcosm, the congregation will become in macrocosm. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then the character of those who fill the office of these three positions is of utmost importance. Because as the leadership goes, 
so too will the church go. And so here at Calvary, this one in particular, we don't officially name people as deacons. Maybe we should. We just never have. We do name people officially as elders and pastors. And part of the reason why we do, and I'm not sure if it's right. We're going to talk more about it. Part of it is we don't want to get into this mindset of, well, call the deacons. That's their job because it's all of our job to be servants. And, but I can, I can tell you this. we got a lot of deacons in this church, and I can go around the room and I can point them out to you that are serving in that role already, whether we officially, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk. All right, give me, a, give me a couple weeks. It's been a busy week, uh, and we'll let you know what we decide. But it's about character. It's about loving other people well. It's about serving humbly. And again, so many of you do that so well, and thank you for being a servant to this church. Let's pray. So, Lord, you're incredibly wise and good. And you know what your people need and you know how best to fill those needs. We thank you for the example we see of the apostles there in the book of Acts. We thank you for the outpouring of your spirit, that it was so great that they had problems. Lord, we think of that proverb, uh, where the manger is clean, there is no ox, or however it goes. And Lord, we know the problems come, Lord, even when you're working. And we thank you for those that meet those needs and fill those roles and are unsung blessings to others. And the vast majority will never, maybe never even know their name. And yet we benefit from their service and their ministry. And so, Lord, I pray Lord, you would fill all of our hearts with a heart to use the gifts that you have given us to be a blessing to other people. And that we would do it in such a way not to bring attention to ourselves or glory to ourselves, but to lift up the name of Christ, that more might come to Jesus as a result of the simple, silent tasks that we do behind the scenes. Because honestly, Lord, we don't want to draw people to ourselves. There's nothing to draw them to, really. It's all vain glory if we do. But when people are drawn to you, they've come to the place for which they were created. And Lord, if we could play a small part in that, what a tremendous privilege. So Lord, bless this church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.